0: Snapshot of the early church. So if you're able, please stand now for the reading of God's Word from the book of Acts. This is chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We pray for us, Father. Thank you. Thank you that we get to be your community, the church. Thank you for all of the grace that you have bestowed and blessings you have bestowed upon us. Thank you, Father, that we are a church that loves your word. Thank you for the fact that we are a church that cares for one another. Thank you for all of the ministries that serve us—our small group, men and women, youth and children. Father, thank you for the generosity of this church that we just heard about, how wonderfully you have given us gifts and allowed us to then give to your mission. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to live and proclaim the gospel of Christ to a watching world. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless this church, that you would allow us to love Christ and to point to him in all that we say and do, and that you might bring glory to yourself. In and through this church we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that in the scriptures we have lots of instructions on how we are to live. We are to love each other, care for one another. We have the 10 commandments to not lie, to not steal, not cheat, etc. But very rarely do we actually have a snapshot of what the church looked like at any given moment. How they lived, what what their life was like as a church community. We have the Old Testament people of God, which in some ways gives us some window, but there are so many things about uh, the Old Testament people that don't easily translate to our lives. They have a tabernacle and then a temple, and then they have priests, and they have animal sacrifices, and they have feasts and kings and prophets. So many of these things that, that don't translate into how we live our daily lives. Then we move to the New Testament and we've got the Gospels. We've got Jesus and the disciples. But really the, end of, uh, the Gospels are the end of the Old Testament. They're still living before Christ's death and resurrection. So they're, they're still living in a way that's not totally familiar to us. It's really in the book of Acts that we get our first glimpse of what the New Testament church looks like. So Jesus has risen from the dead, he's ascended, he's poured out his spirit onto the New Testament church, and they're now living as we live as the people of God post-resurrection and ascension. And this snapshot that we see here in Acts 2 that we just read is really the clearest snapshot of what the life of the church looked like starting in the New Testament. It isn't exhaustive, but it's real. It's a real picture of people living together and worshiping together and caring for one another and and gathering together to eat meals together. It's also a durable picture. In many ways, we've changed. If we were to go back, we would be dressed differently. We would speak different languages. We would have different technology. But in a lot of ways, the same building blocks would be there. God's word, the preaching of it, sacraments that we celebrate together, prayers that we pray together, that we gather together in one another's homes and in small groups in order to live out and apply the gospel, that we share the gospel with the world that is around us. So many of the building blocks are exactly the same. And so the main point that I want us to glean from this snapshot of the church in Acts 2 is this, that God has set apart his people, the church, to be a Bible-saturated caring, worshiping, and evangelistic community. God has set apart his people, the church, to be a Bible-saturated, caring, worshiping, and evangelistic community. I borrowed some of these headings from John Stott's book, The Living Church, which is a wonderful book on the church, if you'd like to read on the church. And these headings will form the four points of our message this morning. A Bible-saturated church, a caring church, a worshiping church, and an evangelistic church. First point is this, a Bible-saturated church. Look with me at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This word devoted here, it means to hold fast to or to persevere in. So to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is to hold fast to the teaching of the apostles now the teaching of the apostles it's just a simple way of it's a stand in for the scriptures so if you if you know ephesians 220 it talks about how the church is built on the foundations of the apostles the prophets And Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And so you have the prophets, which are the Old Testament scriptures. You have the apostles, which are the New Testament scriptures. And all of these pointing to the cornerstone, which is Christ. And so we are to be a people devoted to the apostles' teaching. In other words, a people devoted to the word of God found in the Bible. Now here's the reason why God's people need to devote themselves to God's word. It's in God's word where he reveals who he is, who we are, and how we are to live in light of who he is and who we are. We need God's word to know ourselves and to know him. In fact, the Bible is living, it's active, and as we engage with it, it will engage with us. The Bible isn't a a mere religious text where we have the gathering of Wise sayings from all these men throughout history or gurus from the past. It is a living and active word. As Hebrews 4 says, it is the word of God. It is living and active. It's sharper than any two edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word is living, and we need this living word in our lives. In God's word, we also find words of salvation that nourish us, they're bread for our souls. As Jesus said in the Gospels, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's also in God's word that we learn what it is to live and obey, to live as Christians. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God for this purpose, that it might be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that it might have this end in mind, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every Good work. So God's word, it's living and it is active. God's word nourishes our souls and it teaches us how we are to live and obey as God's people. Therefore, we must be a Bible saturated people. A Bible saturated people. And here's what it might look like for us to be a Bible saturated people. Um, cleaning the kitchen. You get water on the counter. How do you clean up the water on the counter? Well, you would probably grab paper towel or a sponge you take that sponge and you pass the sponge over that water and what does that sponge immediately do it soaks it up and then you take it over to the sink and what do you do you squeeze it and what comes out all the water that you just soaked up a bible saturated person is a person whose mind and heart are saturated with the word of god that we have soaked it up over time And then when the difficulties of life come at us and we are squeezed, and we will be squeezed in this life, what ought to come out of a Bible-saturated person is the Word of God that shapes how we respond and how we live in light of the challenges of our daily lives. Another way to imagine this is seeing the Bible as a lens. So Diana shared this with our staff this week. I thought it was a great picture. So a Bible-saturated person is someone who knows God's Word. We've deposited it into our minds. A Bible-saturated person is also someone who who loves God's word. It's in our hearts, in our minds, and it's in our heart. But a truly Bible-saturated person also sees the Bible as a lens through which they view themselves and the world. We need to know God's word, and we need to love God's word, but we also need to be so saturated with it that it becomes the lens through which we see all of life. We know it, we love it, and we see the world through it. So, the question is Are you a Bible saturated person? Are you a Bible saturated person? The challenge we face is that we are constantly being saturated by the messaging of the world. Here's what you ought to love and how you ought to live. Here's what's going to make you happy and satisfy you. Here's what you ought to build your life upon. We can push back a little bit against the, the messaging of the world, but the reality is, is if you are living and breathing in this world, you are constantly being saturated by the messaging of the world. Therefore, if we're to be a Bible-saturated people, we need to proactively put the Word of God into our hearts. We cannot passively sit by. The world will give us messaging. We need to proactively put the Word of God into our hearts and our minds. Do you regularly make time to put God's word into your heart and into your mind. Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you seek to understand and actively apply it? If your is your family a Bible saturated family is teaching your children about the discipline and instruction of the Lord given to us in God's word is that a part of how you are investing in the lives of your children? Thankfully, as hard as it can be at times, we're not alone in seeking to be a Bible-saturated people. For instance, are you availing yourself of all of the means through which the church is seeking to deposit God's word into your life? Everything we're seeking to do as a church is saturated with the scriptures. Do you attend on Sunday mornings? Are your children engaged with Grace Kids or children's ministry or youth ministry? Are you availing yourself of men's and women's studies, small group studies, book studies? All of these are means through which you can have the Word of God deposited into your heart such that you can be a Bible-saturated person. If you need to grow in your devotion to God's Word, take advantage of what we're doing as a church. Think of it this way. If you attend regularly on Sunday and then you engage in one small group and your children are engaged in children's ministry or youth, the things aimed at them, that's three touches throughout your week where God's word is being deposited into your heart. Now, the church can't replace your private devotion, but we can certainly help you, come alongside you, and and help build into you the value of what it means to be a Bible-saturated person. The snapshot of the church in Acts 2, it reveals that we are to be Bible-saturated saturated people a church devoted to god's word it also gives us a snapshot of what it looks like to be a caring church we're a bible saturated church and a caring church look with me again at acts 242 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and then skip down to 44 and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need And day by day, they were breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This term fellowship is a common term in the New Testament, one of the most common terms used to describe the Christian community. And this word means a close association or a relationship It's a relationship that's designed for us to bear one another's physical burdens, but also share one another's emotional burdens, how we are to love and care for one another both physically and emotionally in the church. And Acts 2 gives us an example of what this type of fellowship might look like. Again, this description is not exhaustive. It's just a, a snapshot, but it is helpful. And the first thing that you'll notice is that the church is together. They are together often Day by day, it says, they went to the temple together, which is the equivalent of what we're doing right now, gathering as the church for a service. And then they regularly, gladly, and generously shared meals with one another in one another's homes. Their lives were intertwined from Sunday through the next Sunday. Their lives would touch throughout the week, building relationships with one another. They were also dependent upon one another. The caring community of the church, they worked to meet the physical needs of their members. So it was like an extended family. They would gather together, they would worship, they were in one another's lives, and as needs would arise, they would together as the church rally to meet the needs of those that were in their community. They would care for one another as a family cares for one another. I think there are a couple of ways that this snapshot may challenge us as A church, when we begin to compare our lives to the the picture that we see in Acts 2. The first is how the fullness of our lives impacts our ability to meaningfully engage with one another regularly, day by day, as it says. I'm currently reading a book by a sociologist named Robert Putnam, and it's called The Upswing. And in this book, he describes these two major sociological shifts over the last century. So he describes in the 1920s that we were a very individualistic society. And then over the 20s up through the 1960s, we became a much more communal society. So we moved from an I society to a we society. And then after the 1960s up until today, we've moved back again from being communal to being I. So it's this I, we, I shift And he says that you can see this shift in how we engage with one another in communal settings. So in churches and uh, in community organizations and fraternal societies, there's this emphasis that has moved away from together to more to the individual and to the immediate family. And Putnam argues that the immediate family unit and its myriad of activities has really become the center of our Lives such that we have little room in our lives for any sort of meaningful interaction outside of our immediate families. And I think this is a fair analysis of our culture and of many of our lives. When we observe the life of the church in Acts 2, it should provoke us to consider our own lives and how we have constructed them. The church in Acts 2 spent lots of time with one another. They were living life together living life together on the most intimate of terms, around their tables, sharing meals together. Consider how this picture compares to your life and my life. Take time to carefully consider ways in which God might be calling you, not to forego all of the busyness in your life, but some of it so that you have space in your life to meaningfully engage and build genuine relationships with those around you. One thing that last year has taught us is that we need one another. I had numerous conversations over this last year, especially last spring when everything really shut down and some of our activities were compared way back. And I had a number of people say to me, I've been so busy and I've been moving so quickly, I'm interacting with people all of the time, but I realize now as so much of my life has been shut down, I don't have very many meaningful and genuine relationships to draw from. I feel isolated because I realize I don't actually have that many close friends. I'm with people, I do stuff. But they don't really know me, and I'm not confident I really know them. And friends, this won't be the last time when we need one another. And my encouragement is that we do not move too quickly from this moment, that we don't plunge ourselves so suddenly back into normal life that we forget the lessons that this last year has taught us, that we need one another. And so as we rebuild our lives in the coming months, consider how you can rebuild it in such a way that you make space for meaningful and genuine care and fellowship with other people. Because it's too late when we're in the moment to build those relationships. We need to build them now so that when challenges inevitably strike, which they will, we have the relationships there to sustain us. The second challenge from this snapshot of the church in Acts 2 is the way in which they met one another's physical needs. For many Christians around the world, even many Christians in our own country, these words are relatively easily applied. However, for many of us, our prosperity can often shield us from our need for others to meet our physical needs. On the one hand, this is a a blessing. Who's going to get upset at the fact that I have so much prosperity that I don't need someone else to meet my physical needs? It's a blessing. God has given this to us and he's given us an abundance as we've seen in the generosity to the church. We can now give away to the mission of the church and to meet the needs of those around us. But on the other hand, I wonder if sometimes our prosperity shields us from our dependence upon one another, a dependence that will actually knit us together as a church. In other congregations I've been a part of, giving to others and serving others in the context of the church was a natural part of the life, of the life we lived together. In fact, it was, it was a necessity. There were people in genuine need. It wasn't uncommon for someone to share in their small group that they were on hard times financially and that that small group of the church would rally around them and give to meet the needs in their lives. Someone might have a remodeling project and they would get their small group together and we'd go over to their house and we would help them with the remodeling project over the weekend or if they, uh, if they were needing to move, we wouldn't hire someone to move them. We would help them pack. We'd load the truck, and we'd help them unload the truck and move into their home. And so out of necessity, we were caring for one another's needs. But what that did is that this interdependence, this need that was shared with one another, it acted as a communal glue that held us together as a church family. We needed each other. We needed each other in our daily lives. And the point here is, isn't that it's wrong for us to have financial means. And it's not wrong for us to hire people to do things for us. The point is, is that in so doing, it's actually possible for us to live very independent and self-sufficient lives. In this self-sufficiency, it can actually hinder us from forming bonds of a caring community as a church because there are whole swaths of our lives where we simply don't need each other. I don't need you to do for me. You probably don't need me in many ways to do for you in these physical ways. Therefore, we miss the opportunity of what it looks like to be a caring community that can meet the needs of those around us. And we can't force ourselves to have needs. I get that. But we would be wise to at least consider that this picture of the church, this picture of serving and giving to one another, is is a component we may not readily have. Therefore, we're going to need to push in all the more to the fellowship and the hospitality and the care that we can express in and through our lives here as a church. Although we may have fewer opportunities to give, there are opportunities within our congregation Through our meals ministry, we regularly have the opportunity to provide meals for those who are having children or who are experiencing bereavement or maybe have moved and they're not quite set up. It's a wonderful opportunity to meet the tangible needs of those around you. We have details about that in the bulletin. We also have the opportunity to care for the elderly in our church, the widow, the widower in our midst, and those that are still isolated from COVID. If we open our eyes, I think we will see opportunities to meet the needs of those around us. So Acts 2, it gives us a snapshot of a Bible-saturated people, a Bible-saturated church. It also gives us a snapshot of a caring church. And now it also gives us a snapshot of a worshiping church. Our third point, a worshiping church. Look with me again at Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. Then down to 46, and day by day they attended the temple together. What we have here is the picture of a church that is committed to gathering together, to worship together. What we are doing right now are Sunday services. And these services were characterized by three marks. God's word, the apostles' teaching the breaking of the bread, which points to the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, to prayer. And throughout church history, theologians have said these are the three marks of the church, the preaching of God's word, the celebration of the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper, and corporate prayer together. I've already spoken about us being a Bible-saturated people, so I won't belabor that, but I think it is worth noting that each and every Sunday we gather, the Bible is at the center of what our gatherings are all about. Every week we open the scriptures and we preach from them. Every week we sing songs that are saturated with God's word. Sometimes literally Katie is writing songs for us that are from the scriptures. The Bible features prominently in everything we do on our Sunday morning services. We're also a people whose worship is built around the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sacraments are signs and seals, meaning they signify something, they're an image of something, and they seal or they promise that if you receive by faith the thing that is promised there, that you will have the thing signified. So baptism is a sign with water of the outpouring of the Spirit, which is what Ali was just talking about. After Christ ascended, he poured out his Spirit upon us, and the Spirit, when it comes upon us, it regenerates our hearts and gives us new life. The Spirit also cleanses us, so this water is poured out upon us, and it's the picture of the Spirit coming upon us and cleansing us of all of our sins. And it's given to us one time, and it marks us out as a member of the people of God. We also celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's a picture of the ongoing relationship we have with God, which is why we do it every week. And it reminds us that we have fellowship with one another, and we have fellowship with God through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. We also pray as a people. So if you picture our services as God speaking to us through his word and he speaks to us through his visible words in the sacraments, we respond to him. We speak to him through our singing and also through our prayers. And so each Sunday is a dialogue with God. God speaking to us and us speaking to him. Prayerful words of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and request. Our entire Worship service is built around the gospel, which is given to us in God's word and imaged for us in the sacraments. And it's built around us responding to God in prayer and song. And the, in, the intended effect of all of this is that our hearts are reoriented and renewed as we engage God each and every week in our worship. I often think of our worship service as the north star of the Christian life. Throughout the week, we're tossed to and fro. We're constantly up and down, and we need something that orients us. So if you picture the sailors of old, they're up and down on the oceans, and what do they look to? They look to the North Star to orient them. This is where we're headed. This is where we're going. And so each week when we gather, it's, it's vital because each week we need reoriented to the truths of who God is, what he has done, and who we are as his people. So we gather every single week to have our hearts renewed and our minds reoriented to what God has given us through Jesus Christ. So given the central importance of what, what God gives us through this service and this gathering that we see in Acts 2, it's wise for us to listen to the words of Hebrew 10, which says this about our Sunday gatherings. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Acts 2 gives us a picture of a Bible-saturated church, a caring church, a worshiping church, and lastly, briefly, it gives us a picture of an evangelizing church. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It would be easy for us to assume these first three aspects of the church life that we could do this apart from the world. But what this last little section makes clear is that we are to live life as the Christian church in view of the world. They are to see us, we're to live in their midst. To use the language of 1 Peter, which we've been studying, we're to be elect exiles, God's chosen people living in and among the world such that they see the life that we live as the church. The life of the church is to be seen and heard. It is to be both proclaimed and displayed to the world as we live the Christian life together. Matthew 5 gives us two wonderful images of what the church can be as it bears witness to the world. Matthew 5 says this, We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We are to be a church family, a community that gives light to the world that when the world sees us worshiping together in a Bible-saturated worship service, when they see us loving one another, caring for one another, meeting one another's needs, they will see a display of what the gospel does when Christ changes the hearts of a people. They will see what it looks like to love and be loved by God. And friends, it will be a light to them. When they see what they, we have, they will want what we have. God calls us to be a beautiful and a compelling picture of a gospel transformed people that is a light, a bastion to the world that draws unto us all those who long to have the hope that we have. Friends, we have this privilege to be God's people, to love his word and to be characterized by loving it and preaching it and praying it and singing it. We also have the privilege of loving one another in a way that is unique to all the world, giving of ourselves to others so that they might know the love that we ourselves have received. And we get the privilege of doing this in the eyes of a watching world, displaying the goodness of Christ that is given to us through his good news, the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that as I preach through this passage and I look over the faces of all those gathered, that so many of us are characterized by these things. This church is a Bible-saturated church that loves one another, that seeks to worship you, and that desires to display the good news to the world. Father, may we continue to grow in this. May we be challenged by your word, and may we more and more be characterized by a love of you and a love of one another, that we might display the glories of Christ to the world around us. Father, do this, I ask in Christ's name, amen.